uh, Sonia and I have some old friends. We actually haven't talked to them in quite some time. A cool couple uh, back in Boston. And uh, when we were getting to know them, we were introducing ourselves to them and hanging out one evening back in the day. Um, you know, as couples sometimes do, you know, we were young couples back then. Uh, we share, like, how we met and how we got together. So Sonia and I told them our get-together story, which involves uh, Sonia seeing my picture in the Frosh book in college, like, before she met me and decided, you know, that I was just, like, really, really hot and stuff. <laughs> she might tell that story differently, but that's basically how it went. And, uh, you know... And then we met, and like and the first time we met, she was like, well, he can't possibly be a Christian, so that's off. And, you know, it's an okay story. And, and then, so tell us about, you know, how you guys got married. And this was their story. Um, he talked her into going out, and she had just been, like, broken up by bad dating experiences and bad romances and stuff like that. So she was like, no, no, no. And finally, she consented to go out with him, and they had you know, just your average date. They, like, you know, went out for dinner or something. And then they're sitting in the car when she's at the end of the evening and, and she's about to get out uh, to leave and she just kind of breaks down and she's like, I, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I just can't do this, you know. I, I can't just kind of expect things and hope for things just to be disappointed when the romance breaks up and, you know, and she just lost it. She just started crying. And, and he said, well, I'm not looking for a way out. Will you marry me? And so I've been married about 27 years now. What do you think? How does that make you feel about first dates? I'm just... Those of you single out there, it's like, oh, good model, good model. You know, take me about one dinner to figure out if I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. Healthy decision-making, unhealthy decision-making. How many of you like, yeah! <laughs> guys, guys got a pair. How many of you are like, oh no, I would never have let them get married in my church. And this is a good illustration. How many of you can't decide what you think? And, and that's, kind of, that's kind of what this sermon is about today. It's kind of like, well, what do I decide about that? Exactly how do I decide about that? Because I'll just give away the punchline uh, right now. I think the essential skill of believing is deciding. I think the essential skill of believing is deciding. We're doing a sermon series uh, called The Way. It's about like, you know, the spiritual journey, sort of A to Z, the beginning, all the way, all the way to the end, which is the end of life and the hope for eternity. And last week we talked about uh, the requirement of seeking. Like, you know, we have, to, we have to be a good seeker. We have to have the ability to seek. And the essential skill of seeking is honesty. You know, it's not really like intellectual curiosity and, and stuff like that. All that, that really, really helps. But to be a good seeker, you have to be an honest person. And primarily, you have to be honest with yourself about yourself. And then secondarily, you have to be honest about what you see and, and what you learn. And this week, 
we're going to talk about believing because, you know, if we're good seekers, hopefully we get to that point where, like, we discover something and it's like, all right, now do we believe it? Do we not believe it? What do we do about our belief? And being at that place, the place of believing, maybe for the first time or maybe at a deeper level, um, maybe that's become the issue on, on your journey. What do you really believe in? Do you really believe what you believe? That sort of thing. That can be an epic moment. That can be a huge moment, particularly when we're deciding for the first time if we believe in God, if we believe all this stuff, you know, this story, a huge moment, as well as, as one that we sometimes cycle back to in increasingly uh, deeper levels. And uh, to do that moment well, to not get stuck at that moment, you have to be a really good decision maker. You have to be comfortable with deciding things. And that can be a challenging life skill. So let's do, let's do another warm-up question. Everybody roll your shoulders, clap your hands, high-five the person next to you, insult somebody random. <clears throat> Just to make sure they're listening is what I mean. So the warm-up question is simply, what are you about? What are you about? What are you about? What, what are you about? Go ahead, think about it. I'll give you eight seconds to consider and 30 seconds to discuss. What are you about? Those of you who are Blue Water veterans will realize that I have actually asked this question before. I like it. What are you about? You won't remember what you answered, but... All right, everybody's quiet. You've made up your mind. Tell somebody what you're about. If you're sitting next to people you don't know and you find the interaction incredibly awkward, tell them you're about silence. Good discussing. Do you feel the unity? I feel the unity. How many of you are sorry you came this morning? It's been like two awkward moments already, and we're not even five minutes into the sermon. I like asking it that way. I like asking people what they're about because it suggests a distinction between what you believe and what you're about. Right? You can believe something. But are you about what you believe? You know what I mean by that? Is it, is it working out in your life? Does it really characterize your life? And I think that that can be a more vital question. Uh, I used to ask, hey, what do you believe? And now I ask, tell me, what are you about? And I find that that usually leads to more interesting conversations. It's about not just what you believe, but whether or not you let your beliefs define you, which is the scary point. Right? Believing something, not so scary. Letting that belief really define the way that you live and what you do, okay, that's the scary point. That's the point that actually takes some faith, and that's really what we're talking about when we talk about belief. Um, I want to talk about deciding. You know, first you have to learn to seek, then you have to learn to decide in a spiritual journey. Do you know what the word decision means, literally? What do you know? Decision. It means to cut away. Like an incision means to cut into something. A decision means to cut away. To eliminate options. That's what decision means. To 
to eliminate options. We just have the one, the one thing to cut away. It's about saying no so that you can say yes. That's what the word decision means. That's where it comes from. Now, that is not a pop cultural value I think in the culture that, that most of us live in. It's not, it's not a high value in popular culture today to not keep your options open, right? We're all about keeping options open. We are all about the sovereign consumer, right? It's like, well, we, we update. We, we do what's right. We are open-minded. And to decide strongly about something, well, that might signal <gasps> close-mindedness. You know, uh, there's, this, there's this tension between making up your mind and closing your mind, right? And our culture sort of swings one way and, and not the other. I think to seek, you have to be honest. We talked about that that week. Uh, but to believe, you have to say no to things. You know, you have to decide. You have to cut away. If you're going to commit to one thing, you have to close off all of the others. Uh, and that's why I think deciding is the essential skill. It's not, believing is not just about coming to embrace a fact or coming to embrace an idea or kind of theoretically assenting to the truth uh, about something. It might not even be about overcoming doubts, right? Because doubt can be a very natural part of the faith journey. Um, I think it's mostly about deciding on it. Like you believe something, all right, now make a decision. All right, now make another decision based on what you believe. That's the only mechanism uh, that counts. So let me talk about that a little bit more and about what, what I mean about that, maybe give some illustrations that are helpful to you or those you know. Have you ever, uh, have you ever asked someone, do you believe in God or something like that? And the answer you get is something like, well, I believe something's out there. I believe in some sort of higher being, but I really don't know. I really don't know uh, what that is. Um, in other words, that person doesn't disbelieve because that would require a firm decision. <laughs> but neither does the person truly believe in something specific because that would require a firm decision. And so that sort of mindset is believing without deciding. And that's death. That's death. That's believing in a way of not believing. Uh, there should be a cool phrase for that, but I can't, I can't think of one. Um, I think that believing without deciding is usually the problem that gets us stuck in life. Uh, we said in the first week of this sermon series that the reason we're, we're doing this sermon series on the way and what's required in, in walking out and maturing in your spiritual journey uh, throughout your life is to avoid things that get us stuck or things that cause us to drift in life. Because the thing that kills faith or the thing that wipes out Jesus followers uh, or even spiritual seekers is usually not a decision to quit, a firm decision to quit. The thing that kills faith journeyers is drifting. Right? It's just kind of, you just kind of get stuck, you just kind of drift, 
and then you wake up one day, 10 years later, and you realize you're just kind of dead, that your, your faith is no more. It's the drifting that kills us. Uh, the main weapons of chaos are vagueness and delay and diffusion, things that just kind of cause us to, to drift in life. That's why believing without deciding is poisonous. Because if you believe in something, you fool yourself into thinking that you actually believe in something. But if you're not making decisions accordingly, you're not really eating, <laughs> you know? It's like you believe in food, but you don't eat. What's going to happen? Uh, you believe in exercise, but you don't go to the gym. What's going to happen? It's, you know, it's, it's not going to help you so much. And we can fool ourselves. We can fool ourselves. Or even if we don't fool ourselves, we can sort of just, I don't know, comfort ourselves or confuse ourselves or diffuse ourselves in a way that gets us stuck. And then we'll wake up today, one day, to find that we're really too stuck. Uh, we really need rescuing uh, at that point. Um, accordingly, the Jesus stories, little stories in the Gospels, are just chocked full of decision moments, right? I mean, the Gospels are really, I mean, they're all stories about belief, but when you read the Gospels, sort of read them on a run, you realize, man, there are a lot of decisive moments in these stories, and some of them are, are really, you know, really, really famous. When Jesus calls a person to belief, he always calls that person to decision, strong decision in the moment, in a way that to me is actually kind of scary, sort of personally scares me. So we get like the first call when Jesus calls Peter, James, and John. You know that story? It's like the beginning of, of uh, the Gospels, and he's walking by the lake, and he sees Peter, James, and John working on their fishing nets near their boats because they are fishermen. And he says, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. He calls them to purpose. He hires them. He gives them a job. And it says, they left their nets and followed him. It's like this really decisive moment. You know, they were literally, you know, leaving their jobs. They were leaving their family heritage in a way because they came from a long line of fishermen, no doubt, living as they did uh, by the lake. Uh, one of, uh, a similar story that I like even more uh, for this comes from Matthew 9.9. It's the calling of Matthew, the disciple of Matthew. You'll find it in your, uh, in your bulletin. It'll also be up here on the big board. Uh, similar, uh, but I think even more dramatic. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. So Matthew was a tax collector. And you think tax collectors would be unpopular in our culture. In that culture, they weren't just unpopular because they took your money, but they collaborated with the Romans, who were an occupying political military force in Israel at that time. So they weren't just money takers. They were traitors, traitors to their people. So incredibly um, unpopular people. They were like mafia bagmen. They were like mafia enforcers. And so Jesus is passing by Matthew at his tax collector's booth. He would have had like, you know, muscle men around him and stuff like that. And he says, follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him, just like left the money on the table, left his job, 
You know, he had already left his people. Now he was leaving, you know, the Romans as well, making himself incredibly vulnerable. And I, I've often thought about that. Like if I were sitting in uh, my cubicle at work, these days I don't actually have a cubicle, but I did those jobs for a long time. And, you know, Jesus walked by and said, come, we're leaving all of this. You know, and it's like, you haven't even taken your lunch yet. What do you do? Do you get up and just walk out of the office knowing that you can never go back? You know, to follow him in that moment would change everything about your life, every circumstance. But Jesus loved these kind of moments, right? He just, he's incredibly rude because that, that's not the right way to do it. This is not seeker-friendly at all, right? He said what he was supposed to do is drop by Matthew's cubicle and say, hey, could we maybe, you know, get a time for coffee later this week, right? And then they were supposed to sit down at Starbucks, and Jesus was supposed to say, I don't, I don't want to put any pressure on you or come across as judgmental or anything, um, but I have, some, you know, I have some provocative questions I want to ask you. you know, I want you to consider these. And then I want to enter into a process of considering together, because you know, that, that's the right way to do it, right? And then you, know, you were supposed to do it sensitively with respect to where he's coming from, his family background, his cultural values, his current position, you know, because one step at a time. And Jesus, just like incredibly inappropriate, he just shows up and said, you at the desk, change everything about your life right now, let's go. What would you do? And here's a better question. If you got up and left, what would you do then? Because I think that's what Jesus was after. Because once he got up and left and could never go back, all the doors were open. Right? All the possibilities were at the table, on the table. And I think that's kind of what Jesus was after. Anyway, you get my point on, on that. Uh, another story I put in here from Mark 10. It's a little bit different, but I think sort of gets to the same thing. It's another very famous Jesus story. Uh, those of you who have uh, read the Bible a fair bit, I'm sure know it. Uh, Mark chapter 10, it's the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. As Jesus started on his way, a man run, ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, I mean, that's at least a seeker right there, you know, sort of publicly throwing himself on his knees and, uh, and asking what I presume was an honest question. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Uh, that was a saying that the Jews had. So what he's doing is kind of provoking this guy to figure out exactly where he is. Like, are you, like is this an honest question? Like, you know, what's going on with you? And Jesus continues, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Uh, he notably leaves out one, you shall not covet. You see why that's significant in a minute. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So you would say to yourself, well, this guy is a believer. I mean, he's, he's been a, a very observant Jew. Um, if he's really been serious about keeping these commandments since he was a boy, I mean, there's something earnest about that. And yet the young man recognizes that something is missing. 
you know? Like, still, Jesus, I, I see you and observe your life and what you do and the way you talk about eternity, and I feel like I lack a little life in my life. Like, I want to be assured that I have an eternity with God. You know, something is rumbling in that guy's soul, right? So he's like, seems like an earnest seeker, seems like an earnest believer. Jesus looked at him and loved him, which is a line in the story that I think often gets overlooked. What Jesus does next, he does out of love. He does out of great compassion for the guy. Jesus likes this guy. He's like, yeah, yeah. I like where you're headed with this, young man. You're doing great. You're awesome. One thing you lack, Jesus said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Boom. Decision moment, right? Jesus gives him a decision point about which he cannot fake. I mean, Jesus just made it real for him. It's like, well, you know, make a, make a decision. And, and Jesus talks about the guy's money. It probably would have been obvious about how the guy was dressed, that he was quite wealthy, and anybody who was wealthy in these sorts of villages were probably quite well-known, so Jesus might well have known who he was uh, before this conversation took place. And so Jesus says, yeah, well, you have to Eliminate your money. Now, Jesus didn't say that to everyone. It's really interesting about Jesus. You know, you, you, you ask him, you pray to God, like, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be renewed? What must I do to get eternal life into my life? And God's answer to you might be a little bit different than his answer to me. But his answer is always going to require a decision. And for this guy, Jesus went to the big decision point in his life. And decisions, remember, are about cutting away. Decisions are about eliminating options as much as they are about embracing options. And what filled this guy's life with endless options? Well, for him it was money. And, and that's what we love about money, right? I mean, some of us are sick and miserly and just like having money, but most of us, what we like about money is that it, it's power. It gives us options. It gives us convenience. It's the ultimate fallback, isn't it? And Jesus is like, yeah, get rid of that. And then just follow me. Just do what everyone else is doing. You know, cut away and follow. Cut away and follow. Make a decision. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth options. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I'm sure that Jesus said that in a disappointed way because he really loved the guy. You know, he really liked him. There are other stories in the gospel like that, and there are passages in the epistles like that. I think of a, a, a line from the epistle of James where he implores his, uh, his charges not to be double-minded about things, not to think first one way and then the other way. It's sort of a make-up-your-mind sort of passage. And there are other make-up-your-mind sort of passages as well. Maybe the most dire passage I think of in this regard comes from Revelation 3. In the book of Revelation, Jesus makes, uh, makes some appearances 
And in, in Revelations 3, you know, the Spirit of, of the Lord is, is, uh, is talking to uh, various churches throughout the Middle East and Central Asia. Um, and uh, he's talking to the church of uh, Laodicea here, and he says, I know your deeds. I've been watching you. Comforting, not comforting. It kind of depends, right? But the Lord is saying, like, I, don't, I, I know you guys. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one of or the other. Some translations will use the word lukewarm. <laughs> it's like, I know that you're, you're lukewarm. Uh, you're kind of in the middle. What does that mean? When you're lukewarm, it means that you're keeping your options open. You're not one or the other. You're both and, right? And Jesus says, I, I wish you were either one or the other. He said anybody who's lukewarm, he's going to spit out of his mouth. He just doesn't like that feeling of lukewarmness in, in people. At least when you make a decision, even if you're going cold, well, at least you know where you stand. You know, and then you can evaluate your decision accordingly. It's like, whoa, I've made this decision, and you know what? It sucks. <laughs> I, I want to go, I want to try for hot instead. But if you're in the middle, if you're always, like, indecisive, Jesus is saying, yeah, there's not much hope for you. I can't work with that, uh, he says. And uh, ultimately, that leads to uh, rejection because you're just drifting. I think some folks, maybe many of us, shoot, maybe most of us have a hard time making big decisions in life. Is that true? Yeah? Want to admit it? Anybody have a really easy time making decisions in life? You're all lying because nobody raised your hand, right? You just refuse to decide. <laughs> Set up. But a lot of us have a hard time making big life decisions. And, you know, if one of those people that respond in fear, that just avoid making big life decisions, then one, you're going to make fewer mistakes in life because you're not going to do anything. And yes, that's going to reduce the number of failures uh, in your life. Uh, but it also means that you will definitely not go very far in life because you won't be doing anything. And failure is often a great part of going forward, right? problem is a person who can't decide firmly on what it means to follow God is pretty easy to seduce away from following God. If you're indecisive, you're kind of making a decision, right? If you don't decide, that is a form of decision-making. It's a very passive form. A failure to make a decision is not always simply a non-decision. It's just a different kind of decision. Failing to make a decision often means that you're just letting someone or something else decide for you, um, to decide for you over time, perhaps. You know, if you can't decide whether or not to go to the doctor, you're kind of deciding that you're not going to get treatment over time, right? The indecision is a sort of decision. If you can't decide what, what career to pursue, well, over time, that's going to mean that you don't have a career. 
because you can't pursue them all simultaneously. And that's just kind of how life works. If you can't decide to follow Jesus first and foremost and put away, cut away whatever chaotic activities or chaotic relationships uh, or chaotic relational activities you're involved in, then the clock is ticking for you. You don't get an infinite amount of time. Um, maybe as a result of your indecision, you're just getting sucked deeper and deeper into chaos until such a time that the chaos actually controls you so severely that you're trapped. And that happens. That happens. Uh, and, and then the end. And then the end. And that's a dangerous game to play. You know, it might turn out okay for you. It might not. Life is really uncertain. But indecisiveness is often, you know, deadly in that fashion. I remember uh, several years ago after uh, um, it was an airline uh, disaster or partial disaster. An airliner crashed on a runway and some of the passengers made it out and some did it. And I read a lot of research after that about how people behave in disasters like that. You know, airline crashes are, are building fires or, you know, boats that are sinking and so on. When you find yourself in a situation like that. And one thing that the research on human behavior in those moments has concluded decisively is that doing something is always better than doing nothing in those moments. And what, what they have observed about people is that, you know, when the airliner, you know, crashes and it comes to a halt and on the runway, that a lot of people kind of get stuck in indecision. They get shocked, right? And we've probably seen that behavior in ourselves or in other people in very dramatic or intense situations. It's like, I can't believe this is happening. You know, I, I, I don't know what to do. Other people just react. They just kind of run around and, you know, bump into other people and, and kind of, you know, maybe look silly. But the research says that those people eventually usually find the way out. And then there are the third class of people, which when they get on the airplane, actually do read the card <laughs> and locate where the exits are. And if you just do that, uh, then your chances of getting out uh, from, from a plane that is in trouble are actually like almost certain. Like they're very, very good, which is exactly why they do that little ritual before every flight. Although, you know, you've seen it a hundred times, they're still like, you know, and you're like, this is, this is really stupid. Well, it's stupid until you land without the gear down. And then you want that decision pre-made in your head, right? So you don't fall prey to indecision anyway. A long illustration just to say, I think life is often like that, you know? The skill of decision, right? The skill of decision making. And if you don't practice that, if you're not comfortable with it, then your life will go worse than a life uh, where you make decision freely. You're not giving into the fear of, of big decision. And I say the fear of big decision because those of us who have problems making big life decisions have problem, problems making big life decisions because they are costly. 
Every decision is costly. Why? Because decision is to cut away. Every time you choose one thing, you're saying goodbye to something else. And that feels like a loss. And you're right. It is a loss. The only question is, are you so afraid of it or so sensitive to it that you can't pull off the decision? If so, well, you might get stuck. You might drift. You might just kind of let it go uh, for a long time, and then the chaos uh, will, will perhaps overtake you. If you have a habit of saying, maybe, or, well, we'll see, you might be in trouble. You might be in trouble in life. You might be drifting. Now, saying maybe or we'll see is a lot different than saying I don't know or I don't know yet. See, I don't know or I don't know yet. I honestly don't know. That's a statement that a seeker makes, and that can be a really good statement because I don't know that leads to seeking is a really good sort of I don't know. And it's way better than, oh, we'll see, maybe. You get it? There's a different spirit to those two types of phrases. Saying I don't know yet is a different thing altogether. It can be very, very legitimate provided it's combined with honesty. If you say I don't know yet, then immediately you're gonna say, well, what do I have to do to explore? Am I afraid of knowing? Like, you know, what's going on here? How do I, how do I figure this out? Um, some decisions take time, totally legitimate, provided you're actually giving the time to it and not just drifting. It's really easy to fool yourself in that, really easy to fool yourself. You know, I can't tell you uh, the number of people uh, whom I've counseled with or discipled with, met with one-on-one or in, or in some of our small groups, and, and they know and they know that I know and everybody knows that they're stuck in an evil situation in life. It's a corrupt relationship or it's, a, you know, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's an addiction or it's a really bad habit or whatever it is, you know. And like that's on the table. And... and what shepherds will do in that situation is say, well, obviously, uh, there's a decision to be made here. Uh, you need to go a different way. You need to step out of that. Or you need to get free from that. Or you need to do this thing to help you make progress, whatever it is. And in those situations, uh, no one, very, very rarely will anyone say to me, no. Instead, what they say to me is like, yeah, I have to, I have to decide. No, no, no. Decide now. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to have to get on that. <laughs> you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to really get clear in my head about it. I mean, really clear, really clear. No, no. You're just a coward at that point, right? You are afraid of making the decision because there's loss, there's loss involved. They get stuck in that moment. Well, yeah, we'll see. I need to figure out how to do that. No, you don't. <laughs> It's just kind of a decide. Um, so, um, got to be careful uh, about self-deception. There is a difference between maybe, we'll see, and, oh, I don't know yet. But there's a lot of space for error in that. And, you know, after you make the decision, there's the bit about carrying through. 
uh, on the decision. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more later in the sermon series. Because if you make a big life decision, let's say you big li- make a, a big life decision to follow Jesus or, or, you know, the better life decision to follow Jesus and join him in ministry and be a kingdom person and to be salt and light in the world, well, from time to time, temptations will come to you. Uh, temptations that will try to convince you that that was a bad decision <laughs> or that you can suspend that decision for this week or something like that, you know. Um, and so there is the issue of, of follow through. Uh, and, you know, we'll talk about that, the need for strengthening and growth and change and, and whatnot. Uh, the need to affirm big decisions that you make uh, repeatedly, to not go back on big decisions uh, that you make. The requirement of, of saying, like, I decided to do this, and even though it's turned out differently than I thought it would, even though I feel differently about it than I thought I would, I'm going to stick with it. That can be a, different, a difficult negotiation uh, in life. Uh, and so I make a big deal about deciding things once. Deciding once. There's a tension here uh, as well because, you know, no one, you don't want to be arrogant in life, right? You, you really honestly don't want to be closed-minded in life. And you make a big life decision um, you don't want to say, and I'm totally right and have nothing to learn and I will never update my understandings as long as I live. Well, then you're just kind of like, I don't know, religiously brittle. Uh, that can lead to trouble as well. But we recognize, and we do recognize as a culture, the value of making big decisions once and only once. That's what weddings are about, right? And the reason we make such a big deal about weddings is because, well, they're a big decision. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose one. I'm going to choose one. And there's that line in the classic wedding vows, forsaking all others. You know, it's like, well, you know, there's a certain cost that comes uh, with choosing uh, just one um, and sticking to that person um, forever. Not in my marriage, because my marriage is perfect, perfect and, and I'm endlessly blessed uh, by my wife in all regards. She's not here in the room, but maybe you want to share with her that I said that. <laughs> She's with the cakey today. Um, but that's what weddings are about. My whole philosophy of premarital counseling, those of you who have done it with me, parenth- parenthetically, I'm not really great at it, so maybe you want to do it with someone else. But those of you who have, those of you who have done it with me, you know, I'll say to the couple in the first session, I'll say, my whole goal here is not to solve every problem that's going to come up in your marriage because, you know, ask my wife. I don't know how. Um, But my goal is to make the beginning of your marriage as powerful as possible, to make your wedding vows as transformative as possible, to put as much into this decision as we possibly can, and to set you up, you know, in such a way that that decision... um, helps you navigate uh, the problems that will certainly come up. And so we do think, we make vows on big decisions like that. We recognize that it's important to make a decision once and once only. Uh, There's a big, you know, tide in our culture that thinks that that that's stupid, that you stay married as long as it works for you and stuff like that, which is silly because then you never learn to love anyone, become sacrificial, anyway. You, you don't need that sermon. 
it's a big decision to get married and, and it's a big decision to get divorced if it comes to that. It's like, ooh, you know, you want to make a very, very strong and hopefully merciful and gracious decision uh, should that come to it and, and invite the Lord right into the middle of, of that uh, as well. There's that phrase, burn your bridges. It's like when you make a decision, you burn your bridges so you can't recross the bridge. It's actually a military term. What it means is that uh, you cross a bridge, you cross a river on a bridge into enemy territory to attack the enemy. And as a commander, what you don't want is your soldiers getting scared and running back across the river. So when armies cross a bridge over the river, they burn the bridge. And now every soldier in the army knows there's no turning back, that you have to fight now, otherwise you're dead. Because, you know, you can't cross the river without the bridge. That's the idea. That's where the phrase burning bridges comes from. And, I don't know, that's, that's hard to do in life. It's hard to do in a culture that likes to keep its options open. Nothing is permanent, you know. What we think spiritually, communities that we commit to, friendships we have, stuff like that, not in our culture. Uh, burning your bridges has fallen out of style. Jesus uh, speaks about this stuff as well. He says in Luke 9, uh, in one of the teachings that is particularly haunting for me, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That's harsh. That also is rude. You know, you get the image, right? Uh, a guy goes out to plow his field, and then it's going to be, you know, that's hard work. Have you ever plowed by hand? Anybody? Any country people here? Yes, I bet you have. Yeah. Lee sent to the countryside during the Cultural Revolution in China. She plowed. Oh, God, love her. Uh, yeah, so I've done that a little bit. It's hard. And that is hard work. So you get up in the morning, you put your hand in the plow, and what Jesus is saying is like, if you're going to get through the day's work, there can't be any indecision about it. You know, and maybe some of you have jobs like that. It's like, whew, I'm a, to get through today, I'm going to have to get psyched up and really commit to it. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. So if you put your hand to the plow, and then you're like, uh, is this the right thing to do? As soon as you think that, it's over. And Jesus is saying that life in the kingdom of God is quite like that. It's like, you get started, you get going, and you're like, am I going to really do this? You know, it's like, oh, you just lost. You just lost. You know, that's the wrong attitude. Ultimately, that attitude will torpedo your life with God, right? Doesn't mean that God's not forgiving. Doesn't mean that God's not gracious. It doesn't mean that there are a lot of wonderful people around to help you during those times that inevitably come when we get really tired, really deflated, or struggle with doubt, all of which is, is natural and sometimes even beneficial if they're handled well. But Jesus is saying, at least recognize what the right attitude is. And the right attitude for the believer is an attitude of decisiveness in which big decisions get made as fearlessly as possible. Um, so strong decisions are helpful, like wedding vows. Um, you should get comfortable with that idea. I'm going to decide. You know, I'm going to decide to follow Jesus. And that's why 
Christians have for over 2,000 years celebrated this ritual of baptism, right? You decide to follow Jesus, and then other Christians take you out in a public demonstration. They dunk you under some water, bring you back up to symbolize death and rebirth. This is why Jesus spoke about being born again, which is as crazy a renewal symbol as you can imagine. It's like, no, you are a different person now. I mean, you talk about decisiveness. And these sorts of things need to be celebrated and embraced. You need to make a big deal about it. Because if you're one of those people that's like, yes, you know, I'm in, dunk, do I really want to do this? Then, pardon me saying it this way, Satan's going to get you. He's good at his job. <laughs> He's going to get you. Um, and that's what, that's what you want to avoid. Strong decisions are really helpful. Parenthetical statement, a strong decision is not necessarily a dramatic decision. Uh, perhaps you know those people who feel like they need to get baptized every two years or so. And it's like, you know, I'm all for the power of ritual. Like every once in a while, I think it's really cool if old married couples like renew their vows and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, you know, we're going to... Sony and I are coming up on 30 years. Maybe we should do something. Uh, it's a few years away, but, you know, two and a half or something like that. You know, we got married when we were 12. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think that stuff is really cool. I've had an opportunity to do those renewal ceremonies for people that have been married like 40, 50 years or something. I was like, yeah, that's kind of awesome. But it's like if, if you're doing that all the time, if you're like, you know, getting baptized all the time, maybe, it, maybe there needs to be a different conversation for you, which is like, uh, maybe this is about follow-through, <laughs> you know. Maybe it's about strong decisions and making decisions once and sort of helping yourself along uh, in that. Um, or maybe it's just time to grow and strengthen, uh, to change yourself personally, which is something that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the sermon series. I feel like I've talked a lot today, kind of like philosophically, I've characterized ideas and told relatively few stories. We've talked about scripture, uh, but done it mostly in passing today. I'm just trying to get us to wrestle with this idea of deciding and to think about whether we are good deciders or if we are maybe killing ourselves with indecision. And the way we kill ourselves by indecision is by drifting with it, you know? It's like a very, very slow fall off a cliff. <laughs> it doesn't feel bad until you get to the bottom. Um, there's a meditation in that. You know? There's a serious consideration in that. And it's a consideration that you know, I have to do all the time because, frankly, I find this life, this kingdom life, to be very costly. You know? It's how I know I've been decisive. <laughs> I have to remind myself every so often. It's like, wait, I'm not the sort of guy that does those things. I'm, I'm not the sort of guy that turns back that way. I already made that decision. I made that decision. And to do that sort of self-talk, it's like, well, that's not, that's not Jordan Sang as I've come to understand him. <laughs> you know? He, Jordan Sang is the guy that is following hard after Jesus. You know, I have those sorts of conversations all the time to remind myself that a decision is a decision. That I have cut some stuff away. And that's 
just how it is with me. There's an attitude to it, right? And I desperately need that sort of attitude because I'm a believer and I've chosen to live my life as a believer. Dang, not looking over my shoulder. Come what may, there are certain decisions that I have just made. And maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you need to meditate that. Maybe that's good medicine uh, for you today. There is no believing without strong deciding. I gave it away at the beginning. The essential skill of believing is deciding. It's not knowing or proving or considering or even being passionate about what you believe. At some point, it all boils down to deciding how you're going to live. And maybe today, some of you need to hear that word. You need to make a decision, and you need to burn some bridges. Alternately, alternately maybe some of you are still at the seeking stage. You're trying to, you know, figure out what it is that you, that you think about God and what it is that you do believe. Fantastic. There's no more important, important person in a church than the seeker, Jesus says. It's like That's a very, very exciting place to be. Um, and if you're in that place, I would just like to make you aware that if you're seeking and you're seeking honestly, what you're seeking for is the decision that changes your life permanently. And that's a, that's a big deal. Let's pray and give the Holy Spirit a little chance to work on us this morning. I need it. Holy Spirit, uh, once again, I ask you to, to wax strong in the room, uh, to brood upon us, to stretch out your wings and, and cover us and let us know your presence. Let us know your presence this morning, Lord. I even pray this, Lord, that you'd let us know your presence with tokens of your presence. I pray that you'd speak clearly to certain individuals right now. I pray, Father, for gifts of grace that you just right now touch some people physically and heal their bodies just, just because you're here. Just because you're here. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir some hearts. When that happens, you just find yourself getting oddly emotional for no reason other than the Lord is drawn close to you. It's a good thing. I pray, uh, Father, for a special grace and, and empowerment this morning for those who make it, need to make a decision for you for the first time. I bless you in the name of Jesus to be a decision maker. It leads to life. And then a second category of people are, are those who just had a heck of a time lately and, and you need to be reminded, perhaps reminded by the Spirit that you made this decision, it's worth it, and there is no way you're turning back. No way, that's not who you are, and God bless you for that, be assured.
And in the spirit of decisiveness, if you're one or the other, you're like, oh, yep, I'm going to make a decision uh, for God today. Go ahead and stand up. Or if you're uh, um, just kind of proclaiming today that, ah, you know what, it's been tough, but I'm not turning back. Go ahead and stand up. Make a decision, uh, and we'll just kind of pray a special prayer for you today. bless you brothers and sisters on your journey I just bless you for your strong heartedness I bless you for being brave in a cowardly world I bless you for fixing your eyes on Jesus the author and completer of your faith he who has begun a good work in you is faithful and will bring it to completion. Have no doubt. Have no doubt. You're on board with him and he is on board with you. It will be okay. There is life on this path. Fill him up, Holy Spirit. Fill him up. Let's give you a minute, Lord. Fill him up. Fill him up. Just let the fatigue fall away from your shoulders. Let the dissonance leave your head. It's good. It's good to be clear. It's been said before, but I just recognize you guys as heroes in a fallen generation. Thanks for what you do. 